one of the challenges being raised in a Eastern Western culture and Asian uh, American culture is that you're generally taught from day one, you need to be good at everything. But the reality is the way the business world works is that being good at everything and not great at anything is actually a recipe for disaster. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Dave Liu. Dave is currently the CEO of Lucrative Endeavors, a strategic consulting and investment firm to high growth companies. He previously spent almost 25 years at Jefferies, where he progressed from an analyst to a managing director, co-running all digital media and internet investment banking activities. Dave is also an artist and a writer, publishes a career advice column called Breaking Bamboo and a cartoon series called The ABC Life. Dave recently published a book called The Way of the Wall Street Warrior, a humorous and irreverent guide where he captures the lessons he's learned about conquering the corporate game from his time at Wall Street. In this episode, we spoke with Dave about experiences early in his career that compelled him to unlearn some of the Confucian values he grew up with, how behavioral economics and prospect theory in particular influenced how he approaches his career, and why thinking about himself as a unique durable good helped him advance to managing director at Jefferies. Dave, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. The way we typically like to start off our episodes is by asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up, since food is such a powerful vehicle for culture, learning, background. What was that for you? So I was born in the U.S., in Houston, Texas, but I grew up in Hong Kong. So I grew up in Asia and I ate Chinese food pretty much every day. Uh, so in many ways, Chinese food doesn't really have a whole lot of novelty for me. My father was born in Shanghai, but my mother was born in the Philippines. So we ate Filipino food, but really only whenever my mother cooked it or on special occasions or when we went to the Philippines. And if you haven't had Filipino food before, I liken it to like Asian comfort food. Uh, it's uh, you know a lot of carbs, quite heavy, but makes it feel really good, honestly. My favorite dishes growing up were Filipino dishes. And my all-time favorite uh at the top was probably the salogs. And a salog is essentially when you combine something with uh, garlic fried rice and an egg. So it's typically a breakfast dish. And for me, the salog that ranks right at the top is a, is a bang salog, which is uh, a bangus fish, also known as milk fish, which is actually not very commonly eaten by people that aren't Filipino. And then I was, I was pretty fat as a kid and I loved to eat. So uh, I always try to sneak in uh, halo halo as a dessert. Uh, which is a traditional Filipino dessert. It means mixed mix. And it's got, you know, shaved ice, flan, bananas, garbanzos, and then uh, a lot of ice cream. And, and I would always get ube ice cream uh, because that's my favorite. I was hoping you'd say holo holo. I love holo holo. It's, it's one of the best things ever, I, I'd have to say. So Dave, I think this is actually new to us, but it sounds like you came from a 
multicultural within Asia background, right? For, with your dad being from Shanghai and your mom being from the Philippines and then growing up in Hong Kong, that's a, a, a potpourri of different upbringings and different ethnicities within the Pan-Asian umbrella. Could you speak a bit about what that was like growing up, you know, having a mix of cultures, of Asian cultures within your upbringing and your family? Yeah, it was a really, in hindsight, it was a very unique experience for me because I spent close to one third of my life in Asia and two thirds in the U.S. And in hindsight, I, I could contrast a lot of the pros and cons of both societies. But in the Hong Kong experience, I grew up, obviously, I looked Chinese, even though I'm effectively half Filipino. It was an interesting society because, frankly, I grew up in the majority, over 94, I think 95% of China, Hong Kong, is Han Chinese. So people that look like me are, are, are the super majority, the uber majority, if you will. And I think that definitely left some impressions on me when I came to the U.S. and I contrasted the experience of going from a majority uh, to a minority. I also think that uh, growing up in Hong Kong really shaped the way I think about the world and I think about business. If you're uh, at all familiar with Hong Kong, it's probably one of the most free market uh, capitalistic uh, systems in the world. But it is also probably the most unequal from an economic standpoint. It's not unusual to find an apartment in Hong Kong today that a four bedroom apartment that costs 100 million US dollars. And on the same flip side, a huge per percentage of the population live in what are called coffin hotels or coffin apartments because they're literally the size of a coffin. So I think that growing up in that environment where I was uh, part of the majority in a ultra capitalistic society definitely uh, shaped the way I think about you know, what's fair, what's not fair, how minorities should be treated, how majority should, but I, I look back at that experience as being really unique for me, very different from frankly, a lot of the other Asian Americans that I know who grew up in the United States. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Growing up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, a lot of friends from Hong Kong that come here and, and they go to school here and um, hearing their perspective about being Asian American coming from Hong Kong to Canada or the United States, because they, they went through maybe a flip of the different contrast between being the majority and the minority that you're talking about. What were some of those other nuances that you experienced as the majority that you didn't necessarily experience as the minority? And like, how does that and how has that ended up impacting like how you end up seeing the world? Well, I think the most powerful thing is, and, and this is something that guides me from a career and also from a relationship standpoint, is the inherent biases that we all have as, as human beings. Uh, it affects the way that we think and the way we look at people and the inferences that we immediately make when we meet people. And unfortunately, race is one of the most obvious ways that uh, we judge one another. As a majority uh, in Hong Kong, there's just a de facto assumption that, okay, you're the majority, you're the customer that we're targeting, you're the boss, right? You're the person that I need appro approval from in order to get ahead in life. And when you come to the US, you see that completely flip-flop, right? As an Asian American, you're the minority. And in many ways, you're the, the, the least powerful minority in, in a lot of situations. And so you go from a position where your boss looks like you your customer looks like you to like your boss doesn't look like you and the target customer of the company doesn't look like you either. And I think being able to jump from a situation where I was the majority to now where I was a minority made me very empathetic towards that, made, made me really think more carefully about, okay, 
how, how does it feel to go from essentially the position of power to, to, to a lesser position overnight and from a position of incredible relevance to society to perhaps a position of irrelevance or maybe not completely irrelevant, but certainly not priority you know, in terms of how society is forming itself from a political standpoint, from a economic standpoint. But I think that's probably the number one thing that uh, I think the nuance is, is this notion that when you grow up in a society where everyone looks like you and you're the majority, you develop certain biases that I think are quite hard to break unless you leave or extract yourself from that situation. Uh, one of the tips that I always give Americans, because I've lived obviously a lot outside of America, is I think the best way to appreciate America is actually to leave America, like to go somewhere else and see what it's like, you know, where you're not the majority, where you don't, you know, the majority of people don't speak English and you're the foreigner and see what that feels like. And I resonate with that very closely as someone who actually worked in Singapore pretty recently. It was almost the opposite circumstance as you, Dave, where I grew up in the U.S. and then I went to a place where I'd say it's like a, a melting pot of cultures, right? That's kind of like Singapore's trademark. But at the same time, I felt like I was in this gray zone of being too American, but also not being Asian enough such that I fit in in Singaporean society, which is also kind of like in this gray zone of not being completely Han Chinese or being completely mono-ethnic. So it was it was a very interesting experience that I kind of resonate with you on, on, on that front. And it's really interesting your experience too, coming from Hong Kong to the US and the nuances involved in that, because it's almost like the nuances are twofold, right? One, coming from a place where you are the ethnic majority to minority. And I think there's an other dimension here that's really interesting of coming from a place where there's a certain set of cultural values as well, cultural values, business values, the intermixing of the two, and then coming to a, an environment where those values might be completely 180 or shifted as well. Could you speak a bit to that and what your experience that was? I grew up in an environment, both in school and with my family, which was very traditional Asian values, which were respect for your elders, take care of your family, keep your head down, work really hard, and life will take care of itself. When I do a little bit of a forensic on why is it the way it is, uh, I think a lot of it still stems from traditional Confucian values and the Confucian system around setting up you know, orderly bureaucracies and government and creating a system of order in a country in China where there wasn't one. So I think that, that Confucian value system was definitely ingrained in me and sometimes runs counter to what is required to get ahead in this world. I'll give you a, a good example. You know, when, when I was first uh, starting in my career, I had the privilege of working at Goldman Sachs, a great investment bank. And I worked there when it was still a private partnership. And I was a really young guy then. I was 19. And I distinctly remember that we had three gentlemen that, that made a huge impression on me. Uh, one uh, was a guy, I'll call him Sam. I'm protecting their identity because uh, in this day and age, it's pretty easy to figure out who these people are if you know their names. Sam was an Asian American. He was a Chinese American. He worked really hard. He was by far and away the smartest person in the group, but he never spoke up. And even when uh, he was contradicted in meetings and it was clearly that he was in the right, he would acquiesce to the elders. He would acquiesce to his boss or to the managers. It really struck me that how Sam had the same upbringing as me 
and how he would give his bosses the benefit of the doubt and genuflect and, and compromise. And in, in many ways, he came across as quite weak. And I think that definitely hurt his prospects. There was another gentleman who I'll call Francis, and he was a Caucasian man. And honestly, he was a, he was a moron. He was an idiot. And he didn't know anything from anything. And yet he was the same level as, as Sam. And what I heard largely from Sam and through others was they largely got paid the same. But the big difference was Francis would leave the office early and uh, he would come in late. And there was always a rumor that uh, he was related to one of the partners at Goldman Sachs. You know, that, that's frankly how he got special treatment. And so I looked at Francis and I said, you know, life is clearly not fair. Work is not fair because you got two guys that essentially are making the same compensation, same title, but one is clearly way more advanced in terms of knowledge and capability than the other. And they both reported to an individual who was really not very detail oriented, but just had a magnetic personality and people loved him. And he just demonstrated a lot of the characteristics that now in hindsight, I think most American corporations reward as signs of leadership. He didn't really know a lot about the nuances of what was going on, but the team loved him. And he was also a Caucasian man. And he ascended the organization very, very rapidly. So I think when I, when I look at my upbringing in Asia and I contrast it against my early years working, I could see how some of the things that I had learned worked detrimental in, in my career. And the, and the last thing I'll say, because I think this is, this is actually a piece of advice I give a lot of Asian Americans, is that one of the challenges being raised in a Eastern Western culture and Asian uh, American culture is that you're generally taught from day one, when you start school, whenever you start getting grades, that you need to get an A in everything. You need to be good at everything. But the reality is, in, in, my, in my view and in my own experience, the way the business world works is that being good at everything and not great at anything is actually a recipe for disaster. That's usually when you know, senior management companies start to look and go, okay, so who do we really need you know, when the time comes to promote someone or to give someone compensation? And what I've always found in my career is that people that are really great at one or two things, particularly if they're aligned with the money-making or profit-making machine of a company, they always get ahead faster than the people that are actually good at everything else. And, and they may actually be good at that one thing that matters, but if someone else is great at it, that great person generally wins out, particularly if they know how to lobby and, and politic their way uh, up the ladder. So. I, I know I went a little bit off of a tangent, but I want to tie you know, my upbringing in Asia to how that influenced the way I thought about my career in the early years and how it shaped how I tried to adapt myself to more of a Western approach to my career than an Eastern approach, which I think would have led me in a dead-end job and, and frankly, quite unfulfilled. Dave, that was that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing these tips. Um, <laughs> like I, I was joking earlier, that I'd be writing down notes uh, for my own for my own personal uh, career and professional um, benefit. What I've been hearing a lot, Dave, is this idea of adaptation, uh, this idea of resilience, this idea of like having certain things that are ingrained within you that you need to potentially unlearn to 
benefit yourself more for your personal life and for your professional life moving forward. And we've been touching on it like uh, on the side, but I'd, I'd love to hear more about this career journey of yours and, and tying all these different things together. Like, but put me back into the place where you're starting your career. You're at Jeffries, assuming you finished your internship at Goldman. What was that like? What were the different things that you did really well early in your career that ended up kind of allowing you to keep climbing the corporate ladder and, and then just leading to, to success and keep leaning on the tips? Like our audience loves it. How can we how can we kind of help them um, leveraging some of your own wisdom or some of your own advice on ways that they can up level their own career? Yeah, so my I'll give you general advice which drives my philosophy on this. And then I'll give you a couple of specific examples. So in general, I'm a huge fan of the whole field of behavioral economics and cognitive bias. And for those people that aren't familiar with that, it's the whole area that, that demonstrates through, through research that people are irrational and they frankly do silly or stupid things. And biases are a perfect example of that. There's really no reason to have strong biases, but we all have them. And one of, one of the ones that won a Nobel Prize uh, was won by uh, a guy named Danny Kahneman, who's generally viewed as the godfather of this category. And his prize-winning research was around a whole field known as prospect theory. And, and that field generally says, in, in very simplistic terms, that you know people generally value gains and losses differently. And so we are generally, when, when, you, when you dissect this into practice, this explains why as human beings, we tend to be uh, more risk averse than, than, than risk loving. And that really has driven my career. When I think about working for someone or being hired by someone, I always think about that human bias. How do I make sure that I am the living embodiment of prospect theory? How do I give them a sense that I'm a safe pair of hands that's not gonna screw anything up, but I have upside. Like, so I can reward their investment in me, their compensation in me, their mentorship in me by being someone that they know can cover the table stakes, but provides substantial upside that one day they can claim some benefit for either by being the mentor or the boss that was responsible for helping me get to that next level. Now. Unfortunately, like everything in life, uh, there, there's no silver bullet. <laughs> there's no one thing that, that I did that got me ahead and, and got me to where, where ultimately where I ended up. But it's really a lot of little things that added up that matter. And, and that's another message that I always send to my employees and people that I've mentored. It's like the little things matter because they add up. And so you, you want to try to make sure that you build good habits and develop skills and expertise in certain areas so that it just become natural to you. And so I think there, there's clearly basic level things that you need to master, right? You, you need to kind of master the basics of the job. You need to be detail oriented. You need, you need to show up, right? You need to be enthusiastic, those kinds of things. Those to me are the table stakes, but, but the way that you really accelerate your career and get ahead is you try to do your boss's job. And I've always done that. You know, in investment banking, it's very hierarchical. You know, you have analysts all the way to managing director. And at each level, the job is quite different from the, from the, from the job below. And so what I would always do is I would try to do my job really, really well, and then try to do my boss's job as well. So that the people above him or her 
would look at me and go like, you know, Dave has leadership potential. Dave has potential to be promoted or fast track. So whenever there was any discussion around promoting someone, maybe ahead of schedule or ahead of time, my name would generally bubble to the top. I'd say that there's a lot of you know very specific tactics that that I can share with you, probably not within the context of the time that we have here, but we have a saying in Wall Street that senior bankers, senior people are like pigeons. What they do is they come in, they fly in, they crap on everything, and then they leave. And so one of the things that, that I've always told myself and people that I work with is that don't be a pigeon, be a stork. Be the bird that delivers the baby. And it sounds really obvious, and I, I know what I just said sounds really obvious, but I will tell you, as someone who has spent tens of thousands of hours in meetings in my life that I wish I could get back, I would tell you the vast majority of the meetings I have been in, people have acted like pigeons. They come in and the way they think they add value is by criticizing some work or something someone has done. And they don't necessarily offer up a solution. They just think that, oh, by showing everyone in the room that I can point out all the problems in this project or what you just presented, I'm gonna look smart. And what they don't realize is that they're not doing that. In fact, they're demoralizing people. And particularly if you're trying to get ahead in your career, people above you are gonna look at you and go like, you know what? We don't need another, another Monday morning quarterback. We don't, we don't need another pessimist. We want people that will deliver the baby. And so I know it sounds really obvious to be a stork, not a pigeon, but I will tell you in my career and the way that you're nodding, I, I guarantee you we've all been in those meetings where the vast majority of people are pigeons. And that's just a cycle that, that I think if you break, I think that can really advance your career. Another one that, that has really worked well for me is mapping out your career and knowing your boss's boss. So I call, I call it the minion circle of life, which is everybody has a boss. And it just shocks me how many people in their career do not know their boss's boss or their boss's boss's boss. And it's so important to know that because you, particularly if you're lower down in the rung and you're starting your career, you really need to know why are you doing what you're doing? Why is your boss telling you to do what you're doing? And nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10 is because their boss is telling them to do that. And so knowing the motivations and the incentives that are built into the system all the way up and down that circle is really critical to getting ahead. And the reason why I call it a circle, even though I think we generally call it a corporate ladder, it's, a, it's really a circle because everybody answers to everybody. Even the CEO of a company answers to the board, they answer to the shareholders. And knowing what the shareholders of the board are saying about the CEO or what, this, what the CEO needs to do is really important in your career to map it out. It's just shocking to me how many people start their career or even are in their mid-career and still haven't mapped out like this whole circle and haven't really figured out like who my boss's boss is, what are their incentives, what are their motivations. So those are, those are just two uh, examples. I have a lot more of these because like I said at the beginning, it's not just one silver bullet that gets you ahead in your career. It's probably like at least a dozen things that I did really well, but you get the drift. These are the kinds of things that they don't teach you anywhere and you kind of just learn the hard way. And so part of what I'm trying to do at this stage of my life is to get back and teach people some of the stuff that worked well for me. Dave, these are all amazingly astute observations from your, I think almost two decades now on Wall Street, right? You're, you're definitely a battle-hardened veteran. I'm curious when you first started out or when you were in the early days, 
if there was a kind of like crucible moment or story or instance that you can share where there is kind of like an aha moment where you realized, hey, my current behavior isn't getting me to where I need to be. And then a lot of these lessons really sunk in. Are there any stories like that that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, the one, there's a lot, but the one that I think is probably most impactful to me was when I was kind of middle of my career, so the associate vice president level. So recently out of business school, starting to try to really move up the ladder, I realized that I was heading off a cliff. I realized that I wasn't doing the things that were necessary to get my boss's job and to get my boss's boss's job. And what I mean by that was, I was really good at the analytics and even the presentation. So I would, I could study any company and determine what they should do from an M&A IPO financing standpoint. Uh, I could present to a, a group, a board of directors, captivate them, get them excited, want to hire us, et cetera. But one of the things that I didn't do was I didn't own the client relationship. And so I was replaceable. And so at that point in my career, I developed a philosophy that, that, that I live by and I, and I tell even people just trying to get in the door of anything and try to get up their career ladder, which is you have to think about scarcity. You have to think about yourself as a durable good. You need to think about how do you make yourself truly unique in a world where it's hard to find uniqueness. I, I have a saying, which is be Eunice. Eunice is a Latin for one and only. How do you make yourself come across as someone that is truly unique. And this applies from when you're applying for a job and there's a hundred candidates getting a job all the way to you're one of 10 major investment banks and Facebook or LinkedIn can choose anybody to take them public, right? Like what makes you guys special? What makes you unique? And so the way that I started thinking about really accelerating and getting to the brass ring, capturing the partner, the co-head, the managing director role was around how to be truly Eunice to my organization. And the way I was going to make myself Eunice to the organization was really two things. And they're somewhat related. One was I needed to really start to think about what area of focus would make me unique in the world? Like what specialty, what knowledge base, what relationship base? And at the time, I was covering the, the broadly defined internet and digital media category, which, which is a really massive category. And there was a lot of investment bankers who could do deals in that category. And the one area that, that I really started to hone in on, even as a young non-managing director, but like SVP level, was uh, ad tech. So focusing on online advertising and really understanding the nuances of online advertising. And I still remember there were some of my coworkers and, and compatriots some of my peers who are like, Dave, what are you doing? Like, you know, you, you got to actually broaden out and capture as much of the, of the pie as you can. And I said, look, you know, the problem with that is then you are the living embodiment of investment bankers, which is a, a mile wide and inch deep. You know, a lot of things, but you don't really know a lot about anything. And so I chose to really focus and become a black belt in this one subsector of of the internet and digital media space. And that's really what helped propel me uh, into the managing director role because I developed unique IP in that area. I developed a very strong reputation in that area. Uh, there, there's, there was a time within Silicon Valley where I was known as Mr. AdTech. I, I, I don't know if that was a pejorative or, or a compliment, but I developed a relationship in that area. And I, I started to win a lot of deals in that area because of that. And the deal with the deals came 
revenue and with revenue comes power. And so I think that, you know, seeing as, as a mid-level person, seeing that cliff that I was driving off of and, and wondering, wow, am I really irreplaceable or not? That really helped me course correct and ultimately get to the co-head role. And to bring things full circle a bit, Dave, we kind of started off talking about your identity and upbringing and how some of these different facets of yourself impact your personal and professional life. Thinking now to your career over the past two decades and all that you've learned, where do you feel like your upbringing in AAPI identity has accelerated your learning and your trajectory and some of the habits you've adopted? And where do you feel like are the main points where you've had to take a step back and unlearn a lot of the things that were imbued upon you? So I think that the just this sense of helping the community and helping others, helping elders, you know, leaving the world a little better than when you got here is definitely deeply ingrained in me. If you were to talk to any of my clients, anybody ever worked for me, I think that one thing that was consistent with me and and my approach to business and life is not being short-term focused and not focused so much on what kind of revenue or what kind of compensation this will have for me in the in the near or immediate term. It's really more about sharing and bringing value to as many people, as many clients, as many employees as possible. And I've found that that always bears dividends in the long run. I think the, the areas where uh, I definitely was in a tunnel was during my big earnings years throughout my 30s and early 40s, where I was squarely focused on uh, maximizing the position I was in, building my nest egg. Uh, I had a very specific goal that I wanted to be able to walk away from Wall Street and investment banking by the time I turned 40. And so I was rapidly focused on a specific target that I wanted to hit. And, and I didn't really spend as much time thinking about how to give back and how to give back to the community. But now that you know I'm, I'm much older and I have the liberty to do whatever I want, I'm squarely focused on helping the Asian American community any way I can. I live by an adage that is actually very emblematic of corporate America, which is, I don't think that people are fundamentally out to get you. At least I'd like to believe that most people are good and your coworkers and uh, your bosses and your subordinates aren't out to get you. And I think as a society, as an Asian American, I think I have an obligation to help other Asian Americans. Because I think if, if I don't help them, who will? Because again, like I said, I think people aren't necessarily uh, bad, but I think people are definitely self-interested. And Dave, as you wrap up uh, the episode, how has that philosophy helped you to kind of leave something behind? Um, I know you've been working on a really interesting project. Um, and if folks want to hear more about that, I would love for you to kind of share what that is, why it was important to you, and how people can learn more about it. Yeah, so I'm trying to give back in two ways. Uh, one is, I believe that the most long-term stable position for Asian Americans in America is if we're viewed as um, Americans and not just Asian Americans. And I think that media has a huge influence on that. And so, as you'll see publicly from some of the things I'm involved with, I'm trying to help people that create content the more the money guys, the producer guys, people like that. So I'm involved with Stampede Ventures. The chairman is a good friend of mine, Gideon Yu, a Korean American. And uh, our CEO is Greg Silverman, 
uh, from Warner Brothers. I'm helping support them uh, in their endeavors to create more content, some of which will have Asian faces. I'm also supportive of Vivek Tiwari. Uh, he's an Asian American, arguably the best, uh, the top Asian American producer in Broadway, multiple winners of Grammys and Tony Awards. And through him, my hope is that, you know, we can get more, uh, you know, underrepresented voices out there uh, in Broadway. And then separate and away from that, I've also taken pen to paper in the form of a book. I do a few cartoons as well, but like the primary focus is my book. And the book is called The Way of the Wall Street Warrior. And essentially it is a tactical guide on how I got ahead in my career. And I try to lay out in 30 chapters uh, all the lessons I learned along the way and specific advice on what I did to get paid more, to manage a team, to make an impression in a room, to getting promoted. Very ideally enough uh, ideas in there that people that read it can come up with their own ideas and, and, and realize that there's other ways to manage your career other than what they learn in business school or what they read on, on some blog. And, and the book is really, for me, a way of giving back. And I believe that the monomyth or hero's journey is a great way to live your life. And in many ways, writing this book, sharing my ideas, giving all the proceeds to charity is in many ways my hero's journey. So that's a little bit of what I'm doing now. And it's a passion project for me, but it's also a great way for me to share, you know, the, the stuff I've learned over a 25, 30 year career. Dave, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It was a pleasure to have you. I say this with all sincerity. I admire so much what you guys are doing because you're doing what we need more of. We need more voices out there, diverse voices, Asian American voices, female voices, because I think that's fundamentally how we get our story out there and how we improve uh, things for the next generation. So thank you so much for having me on here and giving me time to share some of what I've learned uh, in my career and life. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.